Well, we're working our way through the modern age, and we're talking about this backlash to the conservatism that came out of World War II. And as I've been talking, there's always a pendulum swing. There's always, especially if you go really far one way, there's always this pendulum swing back the other way. Um, and we see this over and over and over again in history. There had been this pendulum swing toward um, liberality in the 20s when people were disillusioned from World War I, pendulum swing back to even an artificial conservatism after World War II, pendulum swing toward a new liberality um, in, the, in the 60s, which means that you start getting pendulum swings back the other way. For instance, <clears throat> 1971, the New American Standard Bible gets published as a conscious pendulum swing. Uh, if you remember, we had that American Standard Bible that was published in 1901, where it purposely took the U out of, out of the word, you know, like color, and you know, that kind of stuff, saying, no, no, we're going to spell things American ways. We're going to say things the way we do here in America. And for 45 years, that's what everybody in America was reading. Then the Revised Standard came out in 46, and, and, and said, let's do the American Standard, but let's do it with some really good scholarship. Let's go back to the Greek and to the Hebrew. Let's do a, a fairly liberal or a fairly literal translation, because if you remember when we talked about different kinds of translations, there's that formal equivalence where the form is the same. You go word for word. You try very hard to make it as literal a translation as you can. There's that dynamic equivalence that we talked about. Well, let me back up this way. There's a functional equivalence where you're paraphrasing or rewording things so that people understand the meaning behind stuff. Dynamic equivalence is kind of trying to split that difference, saying we're going to try to use as much of the form as we can, but we might have to change some of it so that you get, in a modern vernacular, the right meaning behind it. Well, the RSV was very word-for-wordy kind of thing, but it was also pretty liberal. Um, and I don't mean, again, I have to clarify, not politically liberal, not sociologically liberal, biblically liberal. There are things with um, with some liberal theology that had found their way into the, into the RSV in terms of the slant that it took on several other verses. Which is why, even though this is a, it's got good scholarship, it had an edge to it. Kind of like ESV, the modern ESV that came out not too long ago, is an excellent Bible, great scholarship, that's consciously trying to be conservative in its theology. And so it's, it's like, well, the ESV and the RSV kind of stand opposed to one another in that. But this is why, even though this never really kicked in with a lot of evangelical churches, a lot of mainline churches love this. A lot of the more liberal mainline churches gobbled up the RSV. It's still the main uh, Bible for a lot of those kinds of churches. The Lutheran Church, uh, PCUSA, Methodist Church, etc. In addition, over the past decade, there have been a bunch of different, less accurate translations that have been popping out, right? The New World Translation that's done by the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Good News Bible, the Cotton Patch Bible, that was specifically paraphrased to, to kind of ape the, the vernacular of, uh, of Southern blacks. The New American Bible, which was the, is the Catholic Bible. That's what Catholic churches tend to use. All these have very conscious slants that kind of play fast and loose at various points with the accuracy of Scripture. They really called it the Cotton Patch Bible? Yeah. It's a different world. Different world. It wasn't at the time. To, to be, there were a lot of African Americans that said, oh, cool, I can actually understand this. And yes, this is the way we would speak in the Cotton Patch. Kind of like, yes, at the time, really, really, 
really, really, there was a time when calling people colored was much better than what other people would call them. And you'd call somebody colored, now they'd look at you and go, what's wrong with you? Yeah. What are you, my grandpa? So, because if you remember, we're talking about like the Good News Bible, we're talking about something that is aiming for dynamic equivalence, but really was, was more of a paraphrase over here. So it's on the other end of the world than the RSV. Anyway, so the conservative Lockman Foundation said, we want a good, solid, conservative Bible. But by this, we mean, we don't want you to have a, a theological slant on it one way or another. Just word for word into the English. Stop playing games with it. Just take the Greek, make it English. Take the Hebrew, make it English. That's what we want. As, as, as literal as you can, we want a new American Standard Bible. Remember, there was the American Standard Bible. This is the new one. Anyway, it says far over on this side. If there's any way I could push the, the graphic over a little bit, you know, this is as close to a word for word out of the Greek and Hebrew as you could possibly make it. Please. So they went back to the original Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic. They went to the to the best text that they could find. Completely retranslated it. Um, and they wanted to make sure that unlike the translators of the Good News Bible, um, they're like, we want to make sure all of our translators agree in the inerrancy of Scripture. All of our translators take this as an extremely, they take the Bible itself extremely conservatively. Again, we want to try to, as much as possible, avoid specific doctrines having an edge to their, to their translations. But we want to make sure that everybody involved in this agrees this is the inerrant word of God. They're going to come at it like that. They're not going to mess with it. Now, to show you a little bit, I want to show you some of the differences in translation. Because by going back to the original text, the best, best ones that they could find, and being as literal as possible, it came up with some different things. In the King James, which had been around for 350 years by that time, uh, it said, uh, uh, Proverbs 18.24 says, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that it sticketh closer than a brother. Because that's a very moving verse. But it's not a good translation. The NAS came along and said, A man of many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You see that first part of that verse is, I don't know, significantly different. What with the fact that it's a better translation of the Hebrew than the other one. So... There are times where you say, yeah, this is going to, you read the NAS, it's going to have a different vibe to it than some other ones because they're going to say, I'm coming straight back to, to where this started with. By the way, just to show the difference between the message, which came out, you know, I don't know, a decade or two ago, which is a total paraphrase, by a guy who doesn't know Hebrew. Friends come and friends go, but a true friend sticks by you like family. Which kind of misses an amazing number of important points going on here. Like, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There's, he's talking about a specific... When the Bible talks about somebody specific and you generalize it, do you think you lose something? Maybe just a smidge bit. On the other hand, by doing that, every once in a while there will be something that you say, I'm not sure I understand what that means now. For instance, Amos 4.6, I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities. And that means what? Dentistry? <laughs> Dental hygienist. Dental hygienist. What? Fresh. fresh water. Come on, you see this in your Bible study. What does it mean? Hurting 
it's like gnashing of teeth, so is it saying no cleanness of teeth? Our cleanness of teeth means like there's no reason to gnash, so it's happiness or something? Okay. Anybody else? Okay, let me give you the NIV that says, let's go back to what that means, what the idiom means. I gave you empty stomachs in every city. Your teeth are clean because nothing's going past them. That's what that idiom means. Now, please understand, again, it, it's really good. I love going back to the original, but if you don't know what the idiom means, like if I say, it gives, it's like, what? It gives. It gives a book. It gives a book. You feel like, I don't understand what you're saying. But that's the way you'd say there's a book in German. Es gibt ein Buch. Es gibt. It gives. It's the idiom. But that makes no sense in English. Of course, let's go to the message just for fun. You know, don't you, that I'm the one that emptied your pantries and cleaned out your cupboards. What? Anyway. Uh, the message. Anyway. So the NAS has been revised a bunch of times, last time in 95, and every time they're trying to go back to, to better, tra better translation of better uh, original texts. And this is why I always make the point to have the NAS and the NIV open when I'm doing my own personal Bible study. I'm like, I want to go back to the Hebrew, I want to go back to the Greek, but because I'm old, it's easier even also to just have the NAS out and the, and the NIV out so I get this sense of... Um, both a very formal and a very dynamic equivalence as, I, as I'm reading. Helps me to understand, because if, if, if they disagree on any given verse, I can kind of try to triangulate there and figure out what the original verse is saying and how it's saying it. Oh. Uh, in fact, I did that the other, the other week when I was preaching, and I talked about from Romans, where the NIV talks about the sinful nature and the NAS talks about the flesh. Like, no, the NIV is getting the right idea. That is exactly what Paul is getting at. But the NAS is reminding you that he was doing it by making a dichotomy between spirit and flesh. So remembering how some, the Bible writers did it, but also what they were trying to do at the same time. At least that's what I tried to do. Anyway, ironically, this is the same year that the Living Bible came out. Why would I say ironically? At the other end of the spectrum. Christian author, publisher, Ken Taylor, said, I was doing family devotions, and I'd get to the end of the devotions, I'd find my kids have no idea what we just read. I'd ask them questions about what we just read. They were clueless. And so I found myself paraphrasing it all the time. I was constantly going back, going, okay, what this passage is saying is... And I finally decided I would write out that paraphrase in advance. And when I had the kids read the paraphrase... And then I asked them questions afterwards. They nailed it. And so I realized, oh, maybe that's what I should do. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe other English-speaking families would say, oh, yes, now my children understand this a lot better. Right? He's good, yeah? As a starter. What's, what's the, what is the danger of doing it that way? No, I loved it. What's the danger of doing it that way? Exactly. And so what he did was he created a... I, <laughs> my, my notes are all messed up now. He created the Living Bible, intended to be uh, understood by even the youngest child, and so they made the children's Living Bible. Um, because if you really want your children to understand the Bible, simplify it, right? 
your dating, you know, you, you tell them the, the things that they can understand in their capacity. Uh, you don't, you know, like what you're saying, but you don't, you don't tell them things they can't understand. So the, with the Bible, well, there are details they will need to, you know, you don't have to leave out. Um, we're still putting it in a way that they can understand. I mean, I care for this for Olivia. I hear that. What you don't want is Olivia memorizing Bible verses that are your paraphrase, right? That is correct. Now, what if their entire Bible is the paraphrase? That's what they read, and that's what they're quoting when they quote a Bible verse. Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm saying. The idea of simplifying things, I get that. I'm all over that. That's what teachers do all the time. Having said that, what you don't want is for people to walk away going, that was the Bible. You know, that was a paraphrase of it. Yes? Well, and I think sometimes we can underestimate what a child can really wrap their brain around. I mean, if yeah. you don't give them the beginnings of something, then when do you give them the beginnings of it? Do you think they understand? Because you could actually maybe be telling them at a younger age some things that you think, well, maybe they don't we, we showed my kids, we showed our kids Shakespeare at an early age. We, we watched a lot of Shakespeare movies. And I would explain stuff. We, it, we, we might have to pause it and go, by the way, what he was just saying there was this. And they go, oh, cool. And, you know, and then we and go on. Amazingly, by the time they got to high school and they're studying Shakespeare, everybody's like, I don't get any of this. They're like, I get all of this. I'm used to this. I've heard this before. I've seen this scene before. You know, I, I get that this is because we showed them the original and explained it as we went along. And so you keep familiar. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Well, I was going to say there's something to be said for the memory markers that are put in your brain for having a discussion with them. They don't understand this. And then kids have a lot of words to glean from so yes, the NAS is on one end of the spectrum, the Living Bible on the far end of the spectrum of that. Um, on the plus side, the children's Living Bible that my parents gave me, this is still the mental picture I have of Jesus. The art that's in there, that is not bad, I kind of like it. I mean, he's, he gets intense sometimes, he's very nice sometimes. He's never wearing, like, stark white with a blue sash, you know, like nobody wore. So, you know, I, this is the mental picture I tend to get, which is, works for me. But there's an interesting ripple effect because, yes, it was written to paraphrase for children, and a bunch of adults said, well, I totally get this better than the other ones. This is my Bible now. I'm totally quoting this. I'm totally reading this in my personal devotions because it's easier to understand. I'm like, I can make it even easier. God made people. People are stupid. Jesus loved them, died so that they're better. Everybody wins at the end. Just simplify the Bible for you. Knock yourself out. Run. I might have missed a few details, but in essence, that's a lot easier to remember. So Youth for Christ started handing them out to teens. Billy Graham started handing them out at Crusades. Everybody's reading the Living Bible as if this is the Bible that they do in their own personal devotions. Which means that, you know, good 85% of the Bible, you're going to say, I understand it better than I might otherwise. But again, I have to give the classic example of why I don't like the Living Bible. Back in 1 Kings 20, Ben Hadad sent to him and said, May the gods do uh, so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls of all the people who follow me. And then the king of Israel replied, Tell him, Let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. You haven't fought the battle yet. You're talking like somebody who's just won. You haven't won. Living Bible, the Syrian king sent this message to Ahab. May the gods do more to me than I'm going to do to you if I don't turn Samaria into handfuls of dust, which isn't exactly what he said. 
And the king of Israel retorted, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Which arguably is the basic point that Ahab was trying to use. But it terrified me when somebody in a Bible study said, I didn't know that was from the Bible. I'm like, it isn't. That's not from the Bible. In the late 80s, Taylor says, could, could we maybe fix this? Could, could we maybe actually, I mean, people read it, but we've spent 20 years getting pounded on by people going, it's not a real Bible. So could we do a better translation? The process, they said, no, well, let's go back and do an actual, honest-to-goodness translation of it. Um, kind of along the lines of the Good News Bible, it's a paraphrased translation, but from a conservative standpoint instead of from a liberal standpoint. And so the result was the New Living Translation, which is not horrible. It's, it's not horrible. Now, I, I stopped short of saying it's good. I'm just going to say it's not horrible. It's still technically, you know, like with the, the, the Good News Bible, it's still, it's still over here on the paraphrasey kind of end of things, but it's actually a pretty good paraphrase, and it's actually mostly a translation. Um, it, it, it still sacrifices, like I say, your accuracy to simplicity or to gender neutrality, to political correctness with things. It says, yeah, I know that's not what the original says, but this makes me, this is a lot easier to understand. That always makes me uncomfortable when people make a translation and say, yes, I know that's not what the original is saying, but. It's always a dangerous way to start when you're translating something. Um, and most people assume it to be a paraphrase, even though it, they even put translation in the title. Uh, one of my seminary profs, who's, who's my Greek uh, exegesis prof, who's really good, was on the committee doing this. So, I mean, I, I get it. It's not a bad translation um, compared to a lot of other Bibles out there. Oh. 71 is also the year that Jerry Falwell founded Liberty University. Um, 1956, age of 22, Falwell founds the Thomas Road Baptist Church in elementary school. It starts with, like, I think, I don't know, 30 people or something almost immediately starts a radio and television ministry, and it explodes in growth. By 1967, it's 2,000 members, and they start the Lynchburg Academy, which is a private school, like a, a, a Christian academy, uh, advertised in the Lynchburg News as, quote, a private school for white students, unquote. Because the whole idea was to get around the, the desegregation laws. Because remember you know, Brown versus the Board of Education saying you can't, you can't segregate uh, the races in public schools. They're like, right, well, this isn't a public school. It's a private school. So it's, it's a Christian school, but the whole point of the Christian school is ultimately to keep you away from those disreputable elements. You know, like people who don't look exactly like you. you know, we were talking about earlier. Wow. Then they founded Lynchburg Baptist College, then became, which became Liberty Baptist College, which finally became Liberty University. Um, extremely conservative both biblically and politically. And this is, this is the sort of place that makes it complicated for a lot of modern people to try to understand that political conservatism and biblical conservatism are not the same thing. 
They can be. They can dovetail. But it's not an automatic thing. For Jerry Falwell, it's totally an automatic thing. Um, so, students are required to agree to a code of conduct called the Liberty Way. They agree to dress appropriately on campus. And I read the, the guidelines. It's not that strict. But it's, you know, this is how we want you to dress. Um, to use discernment in their entertainment choices, whether you're watching PG-13, R-rated movies. It doesn't say you can't. It just says we'd really like you to stop and think about that. Actually, The Passion was really good about them tweaking this. Because they said it's an R-rated, extremely Christian movie. Okay, we're not going to say you can no longer watch R-rated movies. We're just going to say stop and think about it before you do. They're uh, supposed to avoid the use of alcohol, tobacco, any other controlled substances, even off campus. You can't do any of that. And we're going to do random drug tests to make sure that you're not. And you're going to agree to this. Which, because they're a private university, they can do. For much the same reason as... Like, uh, your high school can go and do random drug tests of your locker, random checks of your locker, and people go, it's my locker, and the school goes, no, it isn't. You don't have to use the locker, we provide it for you. You don't have to use it. And if you don't have anything bad in it, who cares if we look at it? And they agree to live by the fact, by the, 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 the commitment to the fact that sexual relations are only appropriate within the context of, quote, biblically ordained marriage between a natural-born man and a natural-born woman, etc. So, live by... And that's relatively recent phraseology, too, because they're having to clarify not just people who currently think of themselves as a man or a woman, people who were born with, with specific things. Now, your take on the fact that they're clarifying the verbiage here speaks to probably where you're at on the socio-political spectrum. That is that if you find yourself going, good, I'm glad they clarified that. No games playing. You go, then you'd be fairly conservative. You find yourself saying, well, but... There are some people that are transgendered, they just get it, and you're drifting this way. Not that either one of those, in this case, I'm going to comment as being bad or good. I'm just saying, whether you frowny frown or smiley smile at this, this statement says where you're at on the spectrum. Actually, not, none of that's much different from most Christian colleges. Most Christian colleges have that sort of thing. Um, North Park, the ECC college, <coughs> um, <coughs> has very similar policies. Though it, it only public polices on campus activity, doesn't say what you can do off campus, one or the other. Doesn't have drug testing, and they've completely removed anything about sexuality from any of their rules, um, other than sexual misconduct like rape and things like that. But <coughs> um, different Christian colleges go different directions. North Park is on more the left side of things, saying, "Well, kids will be kids. You can't police the fact that they're going to have sex, and if they do, fine." Anyway, more pointedly, <coughs> students are taught young earth creationism as a core biology course. Um, which again, if you find yourself saying, yay, or you find yourself saying, the horror, that says something about where you're at on the spectrum here. Um, a large number of secular scholars, and even a lot of Christian scholars are like, to present young earth creationism, the earth is only six years old, and that is, they're six years old, <laughs> 6,000 years old. Baby Earth. The, the Earth is only 6,000 years old, and to present that as, that's your geology course. That's your biology course. Um, Liberty does say there are other takes on this, but they're all wrong. This is the way this is. There are people who are like, um, creationism is more of a theological position than a biological one. But other people say, no, the biology bears this out. I include a, a page from a, a textbook that was uh, prepared by Answers in Genesis 
not to say that creationism is wrong, but to say there is often an edge to it. This is a picture from a children's textbook worth talking about, dinosaurs living with, with people. There's an edge to that that is beyond just science, I would think. Now again, I'm not saying that this is the way all young Earth creationists are thinking. What I'm saying is, is there is an edge sometimes to it that goes beyond just science, and I get why some people are like, maybe that's not pedagogically the way to go here. Anyway, even more pointedly, they take a very far-right socio-political stance on a lot of things. Um, for instance, at the 2015 convocation address, uh, the new president, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, encouraged students to obtain conceal and carry permits after the Muslim terrorist attack in San Bernardino earlier that week. So just a couple days earlier, there had been an attack where Muslim terrorists had, had killed people. And he said, if some of those people in that community center had what I have in my back pocket right now, well, I, I've always thought that if more good people had concealed carry permits, we could end those Muslims before they walked in and killed them. I mean, let's teach them a lesson if they ever show up here. Now, again, I'm not arguing against conceal and carry permits here, but to bring this up at a convocation like three or four days after that, saying if those Muslims came here, we'll kill them? Let's just say that sent a mixed message, and like every AP outlet just went, well, I'm, I got my story for tomorrow, you know? Uh, which, uh, for that matter, 2001, after the September 11th attack on the World Trade Center, Jerry Falwell Sr. had argued, the abortionists have got to bear some burden for this, because God will not be mocked. I really believe that the pagans, the abortionists, the feminists, the gays, and lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you help make this happen. Again, is there an argument for the fact that there are times where God has punished societies for stepping away from him? Yes. Was that a wise thing to say immediately after September 11th attacks? No. Could you make the argument, given everything we've been talking about, that, you know, up until, say, 1970, the country had been happily, joyfully, positively, biblically Christian, and then after that people started turning away? It's, it's kind of... You're painting with an extremely broad, negative brush of something that is much more complicated than that. Anyway, 1979, Falwell Sr. galvanized conservatives throughout America into the formation of the moral majority, uh, which was an amorphous thing, because sometimes you talk about there's a majority of moral people in America. You know, I'm talking about all those conservative Christians out there. But it's also a specific political action committee. It's a specific organization. So we have political, biblical conservatives into something that is focused on abortion and feminism, but that's not what it started as. It's the way everybody tends to think of it as. But the initial impetus for the movement was actually President Jimmy Carter's support for racial desegregation of schools. One of the guys that helped co-found it with him, uh, Paul Weirich, said, what galvanized the Christian community was not abortion, school prayer, or the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment for women. I'm living witness to that because I was trying to get those people interested in those issues, and I utterly failed. Now, what changed their mind was Jimmy Carter's intervention against the Christian schools trying to deny them tax-exempt status on the basis of so-called de facto segregation, the fact that schools like Lynchburg Academy had openly admitted only white students and said, yeah, we get to do this because we're a private Christian organization. That is what Falwell started the moral majority about. Now, did it do other things? Absolutely. 
But that's what Lynchburg Academy started as. That's what the moral majority started as. Him saying, uh, you can go find speeches where he talked about this. Him saying, government telling us that we can't have our own race doing this. It's very uncomfortable, actually. Uh, they raised millions of dollars for Ronald Reagan's 1980 bid for the presidency, gained a national pulpit for the conservative message, and conservative politics and conservative Christianity became completely enmeshed with one another once the 70s and 80s came together. Interesting time period. 1979, good housekeeping poll named Falwell the most admired man in America. 1983, he dropped to second in that poll behind Ronald Reagan, which tells you something about good housekeeping. Now again, I see some of you smiling and at least one of you making a frowny icky face. Again, that says something about whether you're like, man, I wish we could return to the time when when a solid, strong, conservative Christian is the most admired man in America, and other people go, he's the most admired man in America? You understand now why they were polarized at the time. If we are still polarized somewhat sitting in class, what, 30 years later, 35 years later? 1989, donations are waning because you've had eight years of, of Reagan as president, which you could take either way, by the way, and people did take either way back then. Does that mean we've had eight years of Reagan we're sick of conservatives, we're not interested in this anymore. Or we've had eight years of Reagan, things are going pretty well now. We don't need to keep, we're not in crisis mode. That both sides tend to express it those ways. You know, it's like, yeah, obviously you guys failed. Obviously we won. You know, that's how you want to look at that. But he disbanded the moral majority. He said, we're done as an organization. I like his quote, he said, our goal has been achieved. I feel I performed the task to which I was called in 1979. The religious right is solidly in place, and like the galvanizing of the black church as a political force a generation ago, the religious conservatives in America are now in for the duration. Which is not only inaccurate, but it's also inaccurate. I mean, it's, it's inaccurate that, well, now we're in. Life is good. But also, it, it just genuinely concerns me that these things are placed in opposition to one another. It's like the black church and then the religiously conservative church. You do... Okay, A, you understand that there's a lot of conservative black churches. And you understand, you're just saying, what you when you say religious conservative, you're meaning truth versus that race. It's like, really? Really? The fact that you would actually put this in your press release to the world. This is you saying, I thought this through when I got this vetted, and I expressed it this way. Every once in a while there will be somebody that says something, you look at them and you go, you have no clue how inappropriate that is. It's beyond just, you're inappropriate, you are quietly inappropriate. You think that's an appropriate joke in this context. You think that's an appropriate manner to dress. You thought that was an appropriate word to use. Seriously? You have no clue. You are that saturated with that thought. Well, 72, as the evidence that demands a verdict was published. <laughs> and we have a big woohoo from the front row. I love that book. Josh McDowell, angry young man, right? Um, his father had been the town drunk. He'd been physically and verbally abusive to Josh his whole life. The family's farmhand, Wayne, sexually abused Josh McDowell for years. Every time the family would leave, they'd say, you got to do whatever Wayne tells you to do. And Wayne said, you got to do horrible things. So... Through his entire childhood from age 6 to age 13, he was sexually abused by the family farmhand. 
when young Josh is told his mom about it, she laughed and said, no, that's ridiculous. He's a guy. Wouldn't be interested in you. You're a boy. That's ridiculous. So he went off to the Air Force, later studied pre-law. Very, very angry, angry, frustrated man, agnostic. When he finally chose to write a paper in college debunking historical Christianity, he's like, you know, I, I, I'm angry with the church, I'm angry with God, I'm angry about all this stuff, I'm hate-filled. Here, I'm going to prove how ridiculous this stuff is. I'm going to prove how you cannot trust the Bible at all. As he researched the topic, he found more and more stuff that actually supported the historicity of the Bible. He's like, I want to show that you can't trust it because it was written so much later. Actually, the earliest stuff seems to have been written like within 10 years of the fact of the time that Jesus died. I was talking about eyewitness accounts of things of people that actually you could have asked about. Okay, well, but Jesus wasn't anything like the Messiah that the Old Testament said that he, actually, he's exactly the way the Old Testament said. Okay, but he, actually, that makes total sense. And the more he studied it, forensically, the more he said, actually, this makes total sense. It converted himself, basically. I mean, there's more to that story, but basically converted himself. But it wasn't just an intellectual conversion, because you could picture how some people say, well, this just makes sense, and ended there. McDonald wrote, God's love took that hatred, turned it upside down, and emptied it out. I looked my father in the eyes, and I said, Dad, I love you, and I really meant it. Because he's, he's like, God's changed me, and I need to be changed in how I interact. I can't hold on to all this. I'm not just the sum total of all the crud I've gone through in my life. God's bigger than that. What's interesting is his father finally was like, I don't understand how. I don't get this. How can you love somebody like me? How can, when I look back at all the stuff that happened, when all the stuff I did, all the stuff Wayne did, how can you love me? And McDowell said, no, I love you because Christ loved me. He changed me. He loved me not because of who I am, but because he, who he wanted me to be. He used that as an opportunity to share the gospel with his dad. So his dad accepted Christ and never touched a drop again. In fact, he said there was one time where he took, he put a bottle to his lips, realized what he was doing, and threw it away. Never even drank. So it's like to see his dad come to know the Lord as a result of that. This isn't just an intellectual conversion. But years later, McDowell's pastor said, well, you also need to forgive Wayne. It's not enough to forgive your dad. Dad was a jerk. Wayne was evil. You've got to forgive Wayne. Otherwise, again, everything you said to your dad is just lip service. McDowell said, no. Told his pastor, I hate the man. I want him to burn in hell. I don't want him saved. But the more he thought about it, the more he read scripture, the more he's like, I don't have that right. God commanded me to forgive him. If I can forgive everything I just said to my dad about how I could forgive him and why I could forgive him, has to apply to Wayne, or else it means nothing. It has to. So he sought Wayne out, and he was very clear. He's like, I had no warmth in my heart. I had no emotional attachment to the man. I mouthed the words, and I meant them. I forgive you. God loves me. God changed me. God loves you, and he wants to change you. I forgive you. And I genuinely do. And this is the last interaction we're going to have. Yeah. But it, so he's like, I, I want you to understand. It's not like, and Wayne and I became friends. It's like, nope, 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 nope. But I genuinely let that that disdain, that bitterness, that anger, that hatred, that you, you are cruel to me. It's like, I gotta let that go. Doesn't mean I gotta like him. But I gotta let that go. And I gotta forgive him for this and move past this. Otherwise, I'm taking that woundedness with me everywhere I go. 
and I am more than just the sum total of my woundedness. I'm not going to disacknowledge the fact that he was cruel. I'm not going to disacknowledge the fact that I'm wounded. But that is not the person that God wanted me to be. That's not the person that sculpted me. He went on to Wheaton College, earned an MDiv at Talbot Theological Seminary, and started a ministry with two main areas over the years. And I go into all that background so that you'll understand why. Because when I was when I met Josh McDowell, I didn't understand why these were, it just didn't seem like the two areas that people normally go into. First off, because when you think of Josh McDowell, you tend to think of him as an apologist. But his main ministry is sexual purity. And I'm like, sexual purity and the historicity of scripture. Why are these the two things that he's like, because he's a guy trained as a lawyer who was abused as a child. No, I totally get this. So sexual purity. He travels to colleges, schools around the nation, talking about the importance of sexual health within marriage and sexual abstinence outside of marriage. It's not just saying, don't have sex if you're a teenager. He's like, no, you can also be sexually inappropriate within marriage. Don't do that. But he made two particularly cogent arguments, and I'm paraphrasing them here because I just remember them from college. But two particular arguments that stuck with me as a college student. One was, he said, you know, people say you can't expect kids to abstain when they want to have sex. Remember, we even talked about that with North Park just a second ago. Their drive is just too strong. He's like, but you know what? Those same people will expect you to abstain from sex if your partner says no. They go, no, she said no. And if you keep going forward, that's rape. And you're supposed to stop yourself. If you can curb your drive and abstain once, you can curb your drive and abstain. If, it, if, if, if the most liberal of people will say, absolutely, you can stop yourself from having sex if your partner says no then they cannot in the same breath say you can't expect people to stop themselves when they really want to have sex. Of course you can. It's just a, maybe it's not your partner saying no, maybe it's God saying no. But it's still a no that you should listen to. The other argument they said is if you can't keep yourself from having sex with someone you're not married to before you get married, why should you believe that you're going to be able to keep yourself from having sex with somebody you're not married to after you get married? And you go, well, but it's a piece of paper. Yeah, and that's going to totally change everything, right? No, it has to be the sanctity of marriage all the way around. The propriety of sex within marriage all the way around. Or else you've missed it all the way around. There's a logic to that I appreciate. It. But yes, he's also an apologist. For centuries, apologists were mainly philosophers. They came at things from a very philosophical standpoint. And they build a philosophical argument for this. It's great. I love that. That's the way I tend to do it. McDowell also made a purview of people who think like lawyers. Uh, and there are other people that have done this before, but he kind of brought this into the modern era. So he wrote evidence that, who's read evidence that demands a verdict? Okay. Um, and he chose that title carefully, because he's like, okay, there's a ton, pardon me, a ton of evidence out there proving, or at least supporting, the historical reliability of scripture, the life and ministry of Christ, etc. And there's enough out there that needs to be dealt with. You can't just dismiss it and go, well, you just believe in some invisible ghost in the sky, you know. No, here, there's physical evidence of all this kind of stuff. You have to actually, if you call yourself a reasonable human being, you have to at least deal with and pass some sort of verdict on this evidence. There's a whole body of evidence out here pointing to this. You can't just flippantly dismiss it, especially since if there's an actual possibility that he might actually be the savior of the world that he said he was, you kind of can't just go, yeah, well, I've got other things to do. You kind of have to deal with this. So it's designed along legal argumentation lines, um, which takes two basic stances. There's the 
criminal law, where lawyers have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt, means motive opportunity, that sort of thing, if it makes good sense, you can make that argument, right? Civil cases, lawyers have to prove using a preponderance of evidence. They don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. It's whichever lawyer has the most evidence on their side. That's the person who wins the civil case. You ever, you ever see that in like, think of, no, don't think of movies. Movies almost invariably do this badly, but movies usually show criminal cases, um, but then it's you know, like the people's court, it's preponderance of evidence kind of stuff. You don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Anyway, that's the form of argumentation that he used. It's like, I want to just throw a ton of information at you. I'm going to throw it all there and say there's a, so much information here. I don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. I just have to show you that there's this wealth of information supporting my basic theory, my basic thesis. So like any good lawyer, he shows point after point, data point after data point, showing how the earlier manuscripts, uh, how, how early we have those compared to the manuscripts that we have of Julius Caesar's writings. Uh, Non-biblical sources for the historicity of Jesus Christ. Look, these, these people aren't even Christian and they're writing about this Nazarene. Uh, the logical and internal consistencies of the Bible and life and ministry of Christ, etc. This makes total sense. And there's a gazillion pieces of information here. Ultimate conclusion is that this all works so well together, it's so consistent, you'd have to have more faith not to think there's something going on here than to think that there's something going on here. You're having to work way too hard on this. Problem is with preponderance of evidence is it doesn't prove anything. It proves absolutely nothing about truth. What it shows is plausibility. This makes sense. Not how could you possibly disagree. Even McDonald said, well, the proper motivation behind the use of these lecture notes is to glorify and magnify Christ, not to win an argument. Uh, apologetics is not for proving the word of God, but simply for providing a basis for faith. We're not trying to prove the word of God to people. You can't. You can't logic somebody into the kingdom. You can't prove them into the kingdom. It's not what, what Paul's ministry is about, is trying to prove it so that if I could just make a good enough argument, you go, well, then I must be a Christian. It's saying there's a basis for the faith. There's a reasonableness behind this. There's a rationality behind this. It makes sense. I'm giving a framework so that you'd have to work really hard to say this is illogical, irrational. I'm, I'm, I'm opening the doors, I'm plowing the ground in your heart so that you can sit there and go, actually, maybe I should make a decision for Christ. It's not making you do it, it's providing the opportunity for you to do it in a meaningful way. Bill Bright from Campus Crusade for Christ clarified, he said, really, it's the Christian who may derive the greatest benefit from reading evidence that demands a verdict. Because I know people back in college that would hand evidence that demands a verdict to a non-Christian and say, you've got to read this. Oh, he's totally going to become a Christian now that he's read evidence that demands it doesn't work. It might work like that. The Holy Spirit might use that. But it doesn't work like that. Bill Bright's right. He's like, no, no. This is you getting ammo. This is you understanding your own faith. This is you understanding the reasonableness of it. So that when somebody sits there and goes, well, I mean, clearly it wasn't an historical Jesus. You go, really? Because what about this? What about, you know, Philo? What about that? There's all these people. Yeah. What about uh, Josephus talking about this? What about this? There's people who aren't in this culture writing about what is going on in the Old Testament, what's going on in the New Testament. Anyway, too many Christians tend to see the book as unassailable proof of everything they believe instead of seeing it as this, I guess, an exhaustive matrix of documents and arguments saying that it's not unreasonable to believe what you believe. It's really a good resource. It's an awesome resource. 
but it should be like an encyclopedia that you go in and you pull things out of. Nobody, okay, I used to do this when I was a kid. Most people don't sit there and just read the encyclopedia. You'd have to be disturbed or me to do that. <laughs> don't! Yeah, or Cody. Yeah, see, it's <laughs> and it's <laughs> Mother's Day! I know, and it's fun to read. All right. So, um, yeah, it shouldn't help people to be forced to have to stop and think about why they don't believe something makes sense. Now, um, this, I want to put this in the historical context that we've been talking about. Evidence that demands a verdict. Some of his other books, like 1977's More Than a Carpenter, um, this is not like Falwell. It's not a reactionary conservatism that says we've got to go back to the way things were before. This is a very modern kind of conservatism. This is a, a pendulum swing, not toward the past, but toward a, a, a conservative way of doing the present. Where Falwell's like, I, I want to consciously say, can't we act more like the way I think I remember 1942? This is, because that's exactly the sort of thing, you know, you, everybody has to wear a tie, everybody has to have short hair, everybody has to do this way. That's the sort of thing that the modern generation was reacting against, right? Whereas McDonald sits there and says, no, 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 I'm reaching that generation where they're at. I'm using ideas that they have. It's a very much a product of the 1970s. He writes, Christianity isn't a religion. Religion is humans trying to work their way to God through good works. Now, Christianity is God coming to men and women through Jesus Christ. That's very much a modern take on things, very much a 70s take on things. Very relational, very personal, actually very simple. His take on, on, on like church Christianity, very simple, very complex for giving arguments for it. But he's like, I'm trying to reach you with a relationship. It is not wrong to question this stuff. All of you out there who are questioning everything your parents told you, good, question it. But if you rigorously and open-mindedly question it, that will draw you to Christ. If you really, 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 with an open mind, try to look into this, you're going to find it makes total sense to be a Christian. Therefore, I like your questions. You counterculture, awesome. So speaking their language, where they're at, does that make sense? Speaking of speaking language where they're at, 73, the new international version of the Bible is published. Technically, this got started back in the 1950s when kind of evangelicalism started its heyday. Uh, I know it's really hot in here, so it's, I'm, I'm struggling. Yeah, I'm watching everybody, I'm watching multiple people close their eyes and yawning and close their eyes, and I'm not that much more boring than I normally am. So um, I'm standing up here going, I'm really hot. Um, Back when evangelicals were like, you know, we really need a modern translation. Because up to that point, the only one out there was the RSB. It wasn't that modern, it was kind of liberal. And this is a decade before the Good News Bible came out. They said, yeah, let's, let's get something that's very readable for modern readers. 65, the year before the Good News translation came out, project is started by a committee of scholars that included New Testament scholar Robert Mounts, um, Trinity professor, and academic dean, and future editor of Christianity Today, Kenneth Conser. Half of the Trinity campus is named after Kenneth Concert. And Dallas Seminary professor Charles Ryrie. Um, that name, does that name ring a bell for anybody? Yeah. Who ended up using the NIV as the basis for his Ryrie Study Bible in 1978. Anyway, they decided they were going to use the same, essentially the same sort of translation mindset used by the Good News Bible, that Eugene Knight is dynamic equivalence model. But they're going to actually do more of a dynamic equivalence, not, not a paraphrase. 
Whereas the good news ended up using that model and coming up with a paraphrase. The NIV people said, no, no, no. Let's actually do the model that Nidetz soft talked about here. The best translation conveys as much of the original intent as you possibly can, structurally and thematically, as much of the parallelism, as much as the verbiage, as much of the actual words as we can, but as much of the intent that we can. And we might have to, we might have to change some of that structure. We might have to change some of the wording to convey the intent. But we're going to try really hard not to do that. And in general, I think they did a pretty good job um, to try to pull it into a modern idiom while still staying pretty close to the, to the original. Um, like the NAS, they, they made sure that they had a diverse set of translators because they're like, we don't want just everybody from one theological clone. We want a whole spectrum of kinds of people, but we want all of them to come from a decidedly conservative perspective. Again, not that we're trying to give an edge to the verses, but we want them to have a a, fair, a fairly conservative view of the text, where you just don't mess with what the text is originally saying. Um, again, I think it's kind of unprecedented. This is one of the first times that people are like, we're going to genuinely try to keep the original wording and genuinely try to pull it into the modern vernacular so that, that everyday people can read it. There's only been a couple of times in history when anybody's tried that, and it usually fizzled because people didn't like it. Um, you could say, well, isn't that what the King James did? No, if you remember, it's not even remotely what the King James did. King James said, we're going to be as close as we can to the original and give it very beautiful poetic language because this is the Bible and it should be majestic. The NIV said, but it's not all written majestically. It's not all written to be poetic. Some of it was written very conversationally. We need to reflect that. Yeah? Actually, pretty, pretty close in its own way to what the NIV was trying to do. But since Latin, geologically speaking, relatively quickly became not the, the language of the people, um, it became the exact opposite of what it was originally intending to be. Um, yeah, so that was, that was actually, that's actually a probably good historical parallel to what the NIV is trying to do. Anyway, revised slightly in 1984, ultimately followed by a Spanish-speaking version, actually originally the Spanish-speaking version was just paraphrased off of the English-speaking version, it was translated off the English, but then they eventually went back and went, no, no, let's, let's go back to the Greek and Hebrew, so that the modern NVI is, is based off of the Greek and Hebrew, and quickly became the standard for evangelical churches, like the RSV was for mainline churches, because the RSV says, we're going to go back and have kind of a liberal take on it, and IV said, if anything, we're going to have a slightly conservative take on this and be very, very readable because the, if I can oversimplify, mainline churches, by the time you get to the 70s, mainline churches are like, it's all about the structure of things and trying to feel like church. By the 1970s, evangelicalism is, it's all about trying to pull people in relationship with Christ and, and have that, um, that closeness with the Lord. So there's something to be said for why mainline churches are like, actually kind of like that the RSV is a little off-putting, a little stilted because it reminds you of the stiltedness that is God. Whereas the NIV goes, no, kind of like that it's not stilted, because God isn't stilted. And you go, whether you find that comfortable or uncomfortable, again, says something about the spectrum that you're on. 1996, the translation committee put out the, the reader's version, the New International Reader's version, geared toward a third grade reading level, so the kids can read it. Again, like the Living Bible, people went, Oh, I totally get this one so much better. Yeah, I'm totally using this one. And they're like, no, it's a children. It's a... Fine, we'll put a leather one on it and call it an adult Bible. It's easier to read. 
And so they're starting using the MRI. I love how this is the like tiniest R you can imagine. MRB for their own personal Bible studies. But the big one, 1997, they began work on a new gender-neutral version of the NIV. And the, uh, the TNIV and shenanigans ensued. The TNIV from 2002, there's a lot of people that saw it as a bastardization of the text. Um, because it's consciously sacrificing biblical accuracy to political correctness. I know this isn't what the original said, but it's less offensive for me to read from a modern context, so I prefer it. You know. Exactly. Much more inclusive in ways the Bible wasn't. But if it's a much more comfortable thing to read, then great. Because you can improve on the Bible. So the NIV says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. The TNIV said, Blessed are those who don't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. It's not that much different. It's more inclusive. It clarifies the potentially confusing stand in the way of sinners. Because there's sometimes people read that and they go, shouldn't we stand in their way? You go, no, 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 no. I actually prefer the way that the TNIV says it. No, stand in the way that they take. You know, to, don't, don't stand the way that they stand, is what it's getting at. But it does change. Blessed is the person to blessed are they. Especially since in the next verse it's talking about this person, this specific individual. This, this person owns their time with the Lord. They... They meditate on day and night. There's a, a level of specificity that's going on in, in Psalm that the TNIV then loses because it generalizes it. It's no longer about an individual doing stuff. It's, you know, people tend to think of it this way. Mm, okay, it's not a huge thing. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, NIV says in 1 Corinthians. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a human being. Again, I'm like, well... Yes, I get that. I appreciate that you're trying to generalize. But we are talking about, we're not even just talking generally about a man. We're talking about a specific guy. Why did you change that? I mean, it's like if I say, there's there's that man, or, hey, look, there's a man walking down the street. If you turn and look at me and go, you mean person? Come on. I meant that guy. If that offended you when I pointed to a man and said he's a man, maybe a little hypersensitive. Um, but also, there are people that argue, eh, can remove the specificity of Adam's sin. There was not just, well, it was a human that did this. No, it was a specific guy. A specific guy screwed this up. A specific guy fixes it. You lose that. What is man that you are mindful of and the son of man that you care for him, the NIV says in Psalm 8. What are the mere mortals that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, the TNAV says. Again, generalizes by pluralizing. But it also removes the crucial Hebrew, son of man, which is kind of important, isn't it? It kind of becomes a messianic title. And because they screwed it up over here in Psalms, then when they do Hebrews 2, when this is quoted, they mess it up again. So the NIV says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, but you crowned him with glory and honor, put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that's not subject to him. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. TNIV says, 
What are mere mortals that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. Put everything under their feet. You know, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that's not subject to them. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. You go, whoa, you lost a crucially important thing to try to make everybody feel less generally offended. But instead of the original that is quoting Psalm and saying, by the way, this has always been talking about Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, this has now been, it's always just been talking about all of us as human beings. So, massive firestorm. Evangelicals everywhere saying, hey, we've been your power base. We've been buying this. We're never buying this. By the way, the, when I got ordained, it was the TNIV that, that the covenant gave me as my preaching Bible. But you notice I don't, don't preach out of it. But <clears throat> they discontinued it, and both the TNIV and the 1984 NIV were officially replaced by the 2011 version. You cannot get the 2000, or the 1984 one unless you go to eBay. Uh, which, yes, yeah, so we crewed eBay. And for the youth group, we got like every NIV study Bible we could possibly get from kids. We, we cleaned eBay out. But the, 19, or the 2011 version kept 61% of the verses of the earlier NIV. About 31% of the TNIV's verses, and then completely retranslated about 8% 8, 8 of the verses. The idea was they were trying to avoid the most annoyingly PC parts. The ones that they knew had torqued everybody off. Those will change, but we are going to try to do... There are some things where the 2011 version is just a better translation. They actually improve some different things. It's closer to the Greek and Hebrew, and I appreciate that. And there are still some things that I'm like, that's not what the original said, and you know that, but you are, you are changing this for society's sake. What? So what's Hebrews like now? What's that? Much better. This it's son of man again. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that was one they totally went like, back to that. Oh. What did we do? <laughs> so um, so the 2011 version, much better. It's depend, Again, depending on where you're at in the spectrum, it's either farther along than it should be or not farther along than it should be on the politically correct scale, but it is what it is. I want to end with, yes? Sure. So, um, slightly different, but um, one had a Bible study in Chicago. Uh, we asked someone to help the person that didn't go to our church. So he brought the hymnals to his church. Okay. His hymnals were gender neutral. So, everywhere in where Isaac Watts wrote, he, the Son of God, it was always it was always translated into something gender neutral that completely took away. He never even said the word Father. Oh. See, okay, uh, the, maybe that Bible study ended in uh, F words and swarming out. My goodness. Well, at least you still, everybody honored Christ. Um, <laughs> I want to clarify before I completely leave the NIV. I absolutely respect the desire for gender neutrality. And there's a verse that it doesn't require that you have a, a gender specific thing and it doesn't change the original. Fine, I'll just call that a, a good translation of it. If it genuinely doesn't change the original, and it's and, 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 and it was written in a, in a culture that assumed males in things, but you want to write it into an idiom in the modern culture that that can be offensive. Well, the whole point of the NIV is to say there are times you, you shift it a little bit so that people will understand it the way you intended. We're not intending it as well. Men can do this. That's not what they originally meant. All right, fine, fine, fine. If you want to make that people or children of God, 
fine. I don't, I don't mind that at all. What I mind is when you change the original point of the text. Like, I understand, sons are a gift from God. They're, you know, like, bows, they're like a, arrows in a quiver. And you go, right, no, children. No, 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 that verse was specifically talking about sons. It was talking about the importance of that. Now, you may not like that, but as a cultural thing, you were even talking about the removal of even potentially offensive cultural artifacts this week down south. And I go, yeah, I find them offensive too. I'm a little uncomfortable with making history go away when you don't like the way it feels. You know, and so I'm like, I kind of want us to understand where this is coming from and discuss it. So anytime where they change it and change the meaning or lose the original meaning, anytime that you consciously change it because you want to make it feel better for people, even if it bastardizes the text, yeah, I have a real problem with that concept. Okay, I got to end with the Yom Kippur War because this is the only way that I can possibly end. We started like seven after. It's now seven after, so I'm going a little over our hour time. But otherwise, there's no way I can get to a reasonable time two weeks from now. Israel's neighbors, pretty much angry since 1967, six-day war, right? Pretty much all of Israel's neighbors hate them. So they invaded on October 6th of 73, which was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Which, if you want to try to imagine what that would be like, picture an enemy attacking us on, say, Christmas morning. Which, which happened, right? Yeah, that's, that's the whole Pearl Harbor thing. So, um, they, the Syrians attacked Israel, Israeli-held territories in Golan Heights. Uh, Egypt attacked Israeli-held territories in, in the Sinai. They didn't invade Israel proper, but the stuff that they said, well, this used to be ours, and you just took it after the last war because you won it. Yeah, that's the way that works. The United States actively supported Israel with arms and ammunition and material and money and all that kind of stuff. Soviet Union actively supported the Arab forces the same way and escalated and escalated. Anybody else remember anything else that was going on in 73 like this? Other in the world? Yeah, we're still in Vietnam where this is happening in Vietnam too. Soviet Union is backing, and China is backing one side, we're backing the other side. Soviet Union is backing one side, we're backing the other side. In fact, the Soviet Union, Soviet ships were actually exchanged fire with Israeli ships at sea. The Soviet Union said, you fired on our ships, we will declare war against you and all your allies. So this is Vietnam ramped up and ratcheted. You go, wait, we're a hop, skip, and a jump from literally World War III because of the Israelis and the Arabs not working together. So things got a little tense, as you can imagine, right? Everybody's like, this could go really, really bad. We're still trying to disentangle from Vietnam, and then this is going on. Adding to the horrors of that, Egypt executed more than 200 unarmed POWs, which you're not supposed to do. More to the point, Syria became inf infamous for torturing their Israeli prisoners before they killed them, and then slaughtering, even refusing to return their bodies after the end of hostilities. Again, a la North Vietnam. For example, one Syrian soldier earned the Syrian Medal of the Republic for killing 28 Israeli prisoners with an axe, decapitating three of them and eating the flesh of one of them. Got the Medal of the Republic for this. The level of hatred from the Arab community toward Israel is it's, it's almost unfathomable for us today. So Henry Kissinger, Bavarian-born Secretary of State for the United States, says, we have to end this. We can't get through, I and mean, this starts in October 6th, we can't get through the end of October with this still going on. 
I mean, within the span of a month, we're looking at World War III. We cannot do this. This has gone crazy. So, he brokered a ceasefire. The Israelis get a little bit more of Syria, because Syria is dumb for picking a fight that they lost. And Egypt took back control of the Suez Canal. But more to the point, everybody was so scared. And if you weren't around back then, it might be hard for you to realize. But 73, all of a sudden, everybody's like, everything we've been afraid of for the last 20 years, we're watching happen. This is getting huge. Um, the, the standoff between the US and the Soviet Union, which led to Jimmy Carter's 1978 peace accords at Camp David, which was arguably the biggest thing of his entire presidency. Whatever else you want to say about, about uh, Jimmy Carter, usually about his brother Billy. Whatever else you want to say about Jimmy Carter, he's a consummate diplomat, genuinely good guy. Brought uh, Prime Minister Menachem Begin and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat to Camp David and said, fix this. I will help you fix this. But we've got to find peace. And so, 1979, you have the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty, finally bringing peace to the region that it hadn't had in thousands of years. And ultimately led to Anwar Sadat's 1981 assassination. Because an Egyptian soldier said, you have sold out Islam by having any peace with Israel. There is no peace in Islam. Islam is about destroying Israel completely. The Yom Kippur War also helped get us out of the Vietnam War. I want you to understand how important the Yom Kippur War is. Um, everybody, again, terrified because there's one thing, we back people here, they back people here, we're starting to see pictures and everything. But when Soviet Union actually says, we will go to war with you over this, everybody's like, this is suddenly getting really serious. Add to that the fact that pretty much everybody under the age of a certain age is protesting the war to one degree or another, saying we need to end this. And add that to the fact that after the Yom Kippur War, gas prices skyrocket because the Middle East is in turmoil. And so, you know, gas stations are having no more gas. Gas stations, at a time when gas was like 50 cents, 45 cents, gas is now $100 a gallon at some gas stations. It, it, it's just, it was insane. Now, you're the United States military. How do you keep putting gas and oil in all of your vehicles that you have over there in, in Vietnam? On every level, they're like, this is not cost effective. We can't keep doing this. So we have to pull out. We're going to lose anyway. We're losing anyway by the time 73 is rolling around. By the time he resigned in 74, Nixon was already pulling us out of Vietnam. It's kind of changed the world. Important thing to know. 1975, Willow Creek Community Church is founded. Kind of changed the world. Kind of an important thing to discuss. We'll talk about that next week. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to, to live in a country where we can praise your name openly. We can love you openly. We have so many Bibles that are available to us to read. I pray, Lord, help us to praise your name openly. Help us to read those Bibles. Help us to take advantage of all the things we tend to ignore because they're privileges. I pray, Lord, help us to understand how we got to this point so that we can be people who are conservative to your word, conservative to your words and to your truth in ways that honor you. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.
Yeah, the air conditioning is broken on the side of the building. It's kind of short.